was an army chaplain, my soldiers asked me all kinds of questions about God, life, relationships, the Bible, and I answered them as best I could. They also called me Padre. Welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I try to answer some of the questions that you might be having out there in the world. Today, we are um, doing my mini-sermon, which is about the weeping of Michelle's husband, Peltiel. Um, pretty tragic tale, but also about our weeping as well. And then we have a bonus, the Bible study that we do every Tuesday morning on Zoom. You're always welcome to join us. Uh, reach out with, to runnermonk at gmail.com uh, or just through the, through the app here on the Anchor app. Um, all right, let's get to it. Blessings. It really sucks to be Michelle, Saul's daughter. Um, she has been through a lot. Not only is she the daughter of the failed king of Israel, Saul, and has been for her whole life, um, growing up in his household, probably born when she's probably already alive when she when he becomes king. Uh, she then um, is given as a prize um, in war for one of Saul's warriors to marry, David, um, for a hundred foreskins. In other words, there's only one way to get a foreskin from a Philistine, um, and that means you've, you're, it's like bringing the scalps or trophies of war. Throughout the history of warfare, soldiers have taken trophies from the dead. It's illegal in the Geneva Convention today, um, and yet soldiers in American armies get arrested every year during wars for it and have ever since the founding of our country. Um, and so this is the old way of doing things. And she's been given to David, a man she probably doesn't know at all or may not know very well, or um, as his wife, as king's daughters were given in those days. Um, so her life has never been in her complete control, um, as has been true of most women throughout history. And, and yet, even for her, it's um, sort of an extreme case. When um, Saul is hunting David, she tells her dad where he is. And then she lies about where he is in a last-minute deception, hiding an idol in, in David's bed. Saul's soldiers come and attack the idol, and they're mad at, at Michelle for hiding him. And yet, what was she supposed to do? Does she side with her father, or does she side with her new husband? Um, these are the the kind of mind-splitting, soul-splitting realities of Michelle's life. She then, um, after David departs the palace, running for his life into the hills with his band in the cave of Adullam with his 400 or 600 men that he's uh, hiding out there with, Saul gives her to another man. And here he's named here Paltiel, the son of Laish. Um, and she goes and lives with him as her, as his, as her, um, as his, as his wife. When David finally comes to the throne, the first thing he does is he gets Abner, who is was in the service of Saul. Abner was one of Saul's generals. He switches over to to David's side, and you can see here the tension in the different tribes of Israel. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, and David is from the tribe of Judah, and there are still many. Um, Benjamites, people in the tribe of Benjamin, Saul's family, who still think Saul should be king, and perhaps one of Saul's descendants should be king. 
All three of Saul's sons are killed in the battle that ends Saul's life as well. And yet um, there's still tension. Uh, when we read history, we, we often read, and then this king became a king after this king. And um, rarely is that ever 100% agreed upon by everybody. Um, just as in our political elections, not everybody agrees on the next uh, president being the actual president. And um, we, the, the longer you look back in history, the more it seems like a smooth transition. But it's not. It's an extremely, extremely difficult transition. And so this defecting general Abner, now he's on David's side, becomes the messenger. And David tells Abner to go and get his wife, his first wife, Michael, Michelle. Um, And so Abner goes. Abner goes with soldiers, of course. David even mentions um, the hundred foreskins of the Philistines when he says that he's going to get her back. Um, and so uh, this middleman, um, Saul's son Ishbel, I guess one of Saul's sons is a survivor. Um, his name means man of shame, so we're not really sure what that means. Uh, he gets my, uh, Michelle from the husband. And you can see the scene before the city gates. Uh, Michelle goes with Abner. Um, and her husband, Paltiel, follows her out the city gates and follows her out to where he sees Abner. And Abner looks at him and says, go back home. Almost like he would, you would say to a dog, um, go home. There's nothing you can do about this. Um, and Paltiel knows that the woman he's been married to is now the king's wife again. Um, and he loves her and he weeps and he walks all the way. It says actually to the next town. He follows her to the next town over until Abner tells him to go home. And you can see the tragedy of life in this time, the tragedies of Michelle's life um, that that uh, so much is outside her control, so much um, of what she wants in life and what Paltiel wants in life and even David what he wants in life is so much subject to the cruel uh, greed of humans especially now that David is king we see a different side of him we see the side of the the shepherd playing the the psalms for the sheep the psalm 23 the Lord is my shepherd I shall not be in want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures and then we see David the king who uh, is cruel and indifferent to other people's sufferings. He's still writing songs. He's still writing psalms. He's still leading the nation in worship of the one true God. He's still doing a lot of stuff that we might consider good. And yet now that he has this power, we are going to see a whole different person emerge. Probably the person that was always there. It's hard to know when we see a biographical subject so close. There is more text devoted to the life of David than any other uh, character in the Bible. He is one of the, he is the main character in many ways of the Old Testament. Um, And many people have been named after him throughout the generations, including myself. And it's no small thing to be named after someone like this, who has all the all the humanity wrapped up in one, someone that went from being the lowest person on the totem pole of life, lowest person on the, in the hierarchy of life, to being the king, the king who now uh, becomes the first in the line of the Messiah, the first in the line of the, 
the Davidic king, Jesus. So uh, there's a lot going on with him that we will see. But we see the real human life, and we know that God is present in these moments of human suffering. The fact that these moments are recorded for us to see, the fact that they are described for us in great detail, should tell us that our relational problems and our feelings of powerlessness and our feelings of hopelessness and our feelings of despair are, are things that God does care about. In the sacred text of God's people, there is recorded these minute details of human suffering that in the grand scheme of things may not seem like a big deal. Paltiel's tears are probably uh, just a drop in the vast ocean of human tears, and yet here we can feel them and see them and get a sense of what it was like to be a human being in those days. And to know that we're not alone in our suffering. These are recorded. The, the Bible does say that God keeps all our tears in a bottle. Um, that each one of us in the pantry of heaven, there's a little bottle, maybe a big bottle, and your tears are in it. And God knows how much you've cried. God knows how much you've wept. God knows how much you've ached and hurt. God knows these things about you. And God has not forgotten. And God will not walk away from those tears. God will not abandon us to our despair. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. It's on page 92. He has come to his people and set them free. He has raised up for us a mighty Savior, born of the house of his servant David. Through his holy prophets he promised of old that he would save us from our enemies, from the hands of all who hate us. He promised to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. This was the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to set us free from the hands of our enemies, free to worship him without fear, holy and righteous in his sight all the days of, his, of our life. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and will be forever. Amen. The Creed on page 96. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you and also with you. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
Thank you. There's two ways to look at prophecy in the Gospels. People always think about Revelation as being like the big prophetic book in the Bible. But, you know, and you know this, you guys are all Bible scholars. You know that Jesus talked a lot about the end of the world, too. Um, it wasn't like it's just in the book of Revelation or something. Um, and St. Paul did, too, in his letters, wrote a lot about what is going to happen next. And Jesus does, too. Jesus's um, statements about the next things or the last things, the word eschatology means last things. Um, scatological humor means humor relating to restrooms. Um, so that's a similar word. Um, and Jesus talked about this eschatological events, the, the last things. The question scholars have debated over the centuries is uh, who actually wrote this? Um, Jesus is preaching his prophecy. He's not writing it. Um, so his disciples are recording it after he's uh, died and risen from the dead, after he is gone from the earth. They're writing this stuff down. So we're, we're, everybody agrees on that, that these accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are uh, written after Jesus is has left the earth. So they're reflecting back on Jesus' teachings based on what happened in the crucifixion, what happened in the resurrection. Um, and the big question is, is, is how, how soon did they write this stuff? Um, and the, it pinges on these, this chapter here in Mark and, and the, the, the ones in Matthew and Luke that are similar. This is sort of his last, um, last speech before he dies, before his final week. And it also is the, the speech which, is, which condemns him to death. It is these statements about the temple that will be brought up at his trial. That anybody who tries to destroy the temple is a terrorist and must be eliminated. Um, you can't go, it's just like joking about bombs at the airport. You don't do it. Um, and if you say it, and it's not a joke, you can get arrested for, for saying things like this, even in our day. Um, maybe not as big a penalty as if it actually actually do something. But um, in that in those days, uh, the First Amendment had not been written yet of freedom of speech. Um, you could say a lot of things in the Roman world and get away with it, but you couldn't really talk about the Roman government or the Roman authorities or anybody that claimed authority through Rome. Uh, th those are the things you couldn't talk about. Our term graffiti um, comes from Rome, the, uh, and it's a Greek word barred into, into, uh, into Roman life of people writing stuff on the wall. It just means writing, but it means like writing on the wall. And the way people expressed political dissent in those days was to write stuff on the wall at night. And then everybody would wake up and see it written on the wall. And, <laughs> and then they'd say, who wrote this? Whose handwriting is this? Uh, and same way with graffiti today. There is a political meaning to most graffiti. We just don't always recognize it as such. Um, and so nothing really ever changes. So, but if you said it out loud in the public spaces, um, you could expect a visit from the Roman authorities. But this is the sermon that um, the Olivet Discourse, as it's often called, from the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a little tiny little mound or hill 
across the, va- the Kidron Valley, which is not much of a valley. It's more of a dip. Uh, between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, there's this little valley, the Kidron Valley. And you can walk it from the top of the Mount of Olives to the Temple Mount if, if there weren't any checkpoints or any guards or any highways, not highways, but busy roads you'd cross. You could probably walk it in about 5 to 10 to 15 minutes. Might be a mile or less. It's not very far. Um, so this is right there overlooking the city of Jerusalem. Um, it's, it, if you go visit Jerusalem today, you have to go to the Mount of Olives and look at the city of Jerusalem. It's like a required uh, tourist stop to see. And you take a picture of the city of Jerusalem spread out before you. It's really something. Uh, so this is where he has this. Um, but he's coming out of the temple. And then in the next verse 3, he's on the Mount of Olives. So it's a very short walk. And he's got a lot to think about on that walk. Uh, He says this very bold statement about the large stones that the temple is made of. So the big question of like when this is written comes to this. When Jesus prophesies that the temple will be torn down, not one stone will be left upon another. Is is this people putting words in his mouth after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Roman general Titus? Or is this like a real prophecy that he actually said and then it kind of happened? Um, So depending on what you think about miracles and prophecies um, will determine when you think this part was written and who wrote it. Um, A more skeptical audience is going to see this written after the fact. It'd It'd be like writing a, like after 9-11, finding, discovering a blog post from 1990 where somebody said two planes driven by people from Saudi Arabia are going to fly into the World Trade Center. And, I mean, everybody now, if you you could easily do a URL search and see when that was written and see that it was fake. Um, and the question is, is this just a deep fake of Jesus? And the fact that the majority of New Testament scholars will say that today, that Mark 13 is a deep fake of Jesus. He never said this stuff. Um, or he may have said it, but nobody really cared until after the temple was destroyed. That might be a little more charitable reading of their skepticism. Um, but to me, like Jesus was a prophet, and prophets prophesy. And if prophets prophesy and something actually happens, that shouldn't be that surprising. Um, if he's already a prophet. So you can decide that for yourself, what you think about that when it was written. Um, But the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, starting in the Jewish war in 63 AD, uh, this is long after Jesus has gone from the scene, but his followers are still around. They're still in Jerusalem. Um, Reading these stories in light of of that, we have a really good account of the Jewish war. In fact, I just listened to the whole thing on Audible. There's a great Audible book of Josephus' account of the Jewish war, where Josephus, who is a traitor to the Roman cause, is a Jewish general who defects to the Roman side. He's a prophet himself. He prophesies that Vespasian, Titus's father, will become the emperor, and he does. And Vespasian saves his life, doesn't kill him like he would other Jewish generals. 
And Josephus then, later in his life, writes down his account of this war, the war that destroys the temple. And his account of the temple uh, destruction is really powerful. Um, the, he writes over and over again, the Romans never wanted to destroy the temple. They tried really hard not to destroy the temple. And Josephus puts the blame on these rebel gangs that are running Jerusalem. They're not freedom fighters anymore. They're just thugs that have taken over the rebellion from Rome. And they won't listen to reason. They won't listen to the other Jewish leaders. They won't listen to the temple, uh, pro- the temple authorities like Caiaphas's descendants and the other high priests. They won't listen to them. They just want everything to burn, and they want to burn with it. Meanwhile, they also want to escape. Um, but Rome eventually, um, as the story goes, they throw a um, somebody throws a torch through a window of the temple. There's a fire. They try to put the fire out. The battle is raging. Um, and the Romans also, Josephus also blames the Jewish rebels for starting the fire in the temple, even though that's their last stronghold that they are defending as the city's taken over. Hard to know who's, who, didn't, who started the fire in the temple. Nobody really knows to this day. But as, as the legend goes and the story goes from Josephus, the fire burns so hot that the golden objects that they've hoarded in the temple, all the gold of Jerusalem has been collected in the temple, begins to melt in the heat, which is somewhat implausible given that gold takes a lot of heat to melt, but maybe not um, given the, the heat of that fire. It's kind of like 9-11. Could those beams be melted by jet fuel? Um, we have a similar problem of it's hard to experiment on these things. <laughs> it's hard to burn it, to build a temple and burn it to see. But the gold... Uh, runs down through the cracks in the stones. And so the Roman soldiers in the coming weeks uh, excavate the stones. They move the large stones to get at the gold that either is hidden down there or or melted and ran down there. Um, gold has a similar melting point to lead. Um, and we know from the London fire, when London burns, that, uh, that the lead from St. Paul's Cathedral runs into the streets and is seen like running like a river down the streets. So there may have been something like that happening. And the Romans who Roman armies got paid by plunder just as much as they got paid their salary, which comes from the word salt, like salinated, desalinated. Um, They got paid in salt a lot. Um, Word salary comes from that. They got paid by looting stuff and plunder that they divided amongst themselves. Uh, So that would have been pretty good plunder. Anyway, this is the event historically that Jesus is prophesying. Now, others have said that this event of the temple being destroyed is um, is also a future event, um, the coming apocalypse that we has still not happened yet, uh, and that could that could be the other option is to take it all spiritually and to say that. Um, Jesus is prophesying the ending of Judaism as we know it and a starting of a new era. And the temple symbolizes that, of course. All right, I'll I'll stop there. Um, But what do you see in this prophecy? Um, Look at these great buildings. Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down.
Yeah. What's the uh, what's the at the very end of that reading you did? There's an illustration or metaphor for what's happening. Yes, this is the beginning of birth pangs. This is the pre-labor contractions, which, um, as I've observed as a distant observer, feels a lot like the actual labor, but is not actual labor. It is the the muscles of of the of the baby pushing machine coming to life almost like new muscles sort of getting activated and starting to do their thing um pretty amazing that our bodies autonomous systems have a life of their own almost that we can't really control or we can do some things to control them but not much um our heartbeat is one thing we can't really control our breathing is something we sort of can go back and forth with. Um, most of our bodily functions are, are um, they're, they have a life of their own. And, and what Jesus is saying, I think in line of what you're saying, Paul, is that like these things will have a life of their own. And just like birth, there's no way to avoid it. Like if you're pregnant and you're going into birth labor, like I've seen the people I've observed giving birth like they try to get out of it, sort of. There's a way, like a, a moment of like, I cut, I got to escape this. Yeah. Is there a way out? And there isn't. And uh, that should give us some comfort too, in that like, this is actually a good thing. Birth is actually a good thing. It doesn't feel like a good thing. And that is the metaphor for this thing. I think Oh, I do. I was the one doing it. <laughs> Back then. I was the one going to the state fair and putting up a booth saying like guess the age you're living in. What what end times age are you in? And people would guess yeah. and they win a free Bible map. I did this at the Texas State Fair and all, a lot of different uh, outdoor events. But that, that was the thing. Like, look at the birth, look at the uh, death rates or death life expectancy rates of the times that 
eschatology and people's obsession with how when is the end time when's the rapture going to happen they coincide with people's lifespans going way up um the era where america was most obsessed with when this is happening is in times where people do feel like they're going to live a long time um when there's hardship and war and pestilence and disease and we all sort of wonder like when's it going to be for us the um the the interest in these subjects kind of drops because you've got your own personal eschatology to worry about uh the the end of everything is not such a big concern kind of like climate change when you're on the last half of your life climate change does not seem like such a big crisis because ultimately our our own life will not make it that far uh it's hard to see if this is important for sure Uh, but if you're standing at the temple looking at the temple from the mount of olives and the temple as nt wright says is it contains all the hopes and dreams of the people of that time in a way that it's probably the closest we can come to it is the capital riots and attack on january 6th which the commission kicks off today maybe for americans that's like the closest thing we can come to to feel like what it would feel like to have a temple destroyed um it's really hard for us to kind of imagine what that would be like because we we have a lot of different temples that would mean a lot to us if they were destroyed i think when the when notre dame cathedral burned for people that had visited paris and visited the cathedral in america it was extremely emotional for those of us who weren't that interested in it and never seen the movie and whatever it wasn't as big a deal um but those are like the you know you'll find out what's important when you find out something is yeah. being destroyed I'm just, I'm just trying to wrap my mind around um, Well, I do think that impulse you mentioned earlier is there um that Jesus is coming look busy you know or Jesus is coming get your life ready for his return and that is a New Testament thing it, Paul writes about it Jesus talks about it in fact and we'll read further but Matthew and Luke both all of them say Jesus is saying this moment is coming you need to be ready for it and the way you get ready for it is you keep your lamp burning you keep believing that the messiah is the true messiah you keep trusting that god will be faithful even though the world is being destroyed like those are the ways you you prepare for this which is kind of good like we should be doing that as a church and community we should be thinking like you know we should be ready for this if jesus were to come back No, you're right. 
And for Christians, we are in the last days. We've been in the last days for 2,000 years. And um, it's easy to be cynical about that and like, well, everybody has their last days. But if you look at all of human history and civilization and you look at um, really the, the Christian belief, which is in the Book of Enoch, this is back to Book of Enoch, which is in the canon of the Ethiopian church um, and is the worldview of the writers of the New Testament. They believed that they were in the final age um, based on the prophecies of the Book of Enoch. Now, whether they were wrong or right, um, this is the actual like timeline of the Book of Enoch, that that this is the age where all history is then remade and reborn. And this is what Jesus is talking about, the rebirth of history. Um, and if you take it in a spiritual level that this is re- happening, these birth pangs are happening. They happened in 1000 AD. They happened in 1200 AD. Um, and you're right. Christians throughout history have looked at their own age as the moment. Um, and that, that is a Christian thing to do, to find the unholy trinity of our age. The Revelation talks about the beast, the false prophet, and the, uh, who's the other one? The Antichrist. So you have these three characters that show up in Revelation, the beast, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. The unholy trinity. There are like. Well, we it and the, the New Testament teaches that John's got John's epistle says that many antichrists will come, and every age has the antichrist in it, um, the one who, instead of bringing life and peace to the world, brings death and destruction. It's usually one man. Like, it's weird how Hitler is the most obvious choice of of the 20th century and. And we'll see who the one, you know, and I don't know, dividing into centuries doesn't always work either. But um, it is amazing that a person like Hitler uh, for, you know, literally 10 years could control uh, the emotional life of the world in a way that and and the death of the world in a really profound way Um, does point to like more power. Yeah, um, but he does say, don't be alarmed. Jesus says, don't be alarmed. Don't be worried. Like, this is the birth pangs. Uh, and, th- and then the, the instructions in verse 14 and 15 of this chapter, which we didn't get into, but, you know, he talks to flee to Galilee, get out of Jerusalem. So this is, like, very practical advice for the Jewish war that's coming, which... Yeah, get away from the city. Don't hide in the cities. Um, and we know from the Josephus account of the Jewish war that there were many fortified cities that the Romans attacked before Jerusalem, Gadara being the one that Josephus is captured in. Uh, Josephus boasts that he built all the fortifications for all the cities. And he was sort of in charge of like making sure all the cities were fortified before the Romans attacked. And he, he kind of like overemphasizes how good the defenses were, even though the Romans conquered him in like one day. Um, He's just Josephus is our only source of information of what the world of Jesus was like, other than the gospels. And yet he is like the worst guy you've ever met in a lot of ways. (laughs) He's a fascinating character. Um, Anyway, so this is where Jesus leaves us, the birth pang. So he asks us, you know, 
these cataclysmic events that seem like they're going to turn our world upside down, what are they giving birth to in your life? Uh, what is the birth that's happening? And the, the birth is always the same. It is being a follower of Jesus and living the way Jesus lived. That is where we are supposed to be going. That's what we're supposed to be birthing in our life. It's painful. But you're doing that. You're doing it. Okay. And that, thus we end. Any other thoughts on Mark 13 as we continue? You can, you know, the Western Wall in Jerusalem, the Wailing Wall used to be called, is part of the original foundation of the temple that Jesus worshipped in and the temple Jesus referred to. Uh, those bottom stones are the foundation stones of Herod's temple. And, you know, like they're still there and they're still extremely significant for not just Jewish people, but for Christians and for Muslims because they're, they're right there too. And every couple months there's another incident there of unrest. Uh, and so like this, this stuff is still like happening in its own way. But thank you all for coming to Bible study.